You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Open with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Romans. It's in Romans. If you aren't sure where that's at, check out your table of contents. Or if you got your phone, it's really easy to find it in there. Let's begin our study today by reading from our text. Our text today comes from Romans chapter 2. We're traveling straight through the book of Romans from beginning to end. This is week 3. And we're going to begin by reading our text, the first half of Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and doing well seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greeks, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all have sinned, all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day... When, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this morning as we study it, Lord, would you give us understanding, that we might understand what it is that you are teaching us here in your word, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might respond properly. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Would you help us to see this morning why it is not just good news, but it is great news, glorious news. And Lord, may our hearts just well up with thanksgiving. May we rejoice as we consider the good news of the gospel and why it's such good news this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Romans is all about the gospel. The gospel. What does the gospel mean? The gospel simply means the good news. It's a proclamation of good news. It's the good news of what God has done for us in Christ in order to save us and give us new life. But here's the thing. In order for us to understand why this is such good news, we need to understand why it is needed. In other words, if there's nothing you need to be saved from, then salvation isn't going to be something that thrills you. It isn't going to be something that grabs a hold of you and really enraptures you. If you don't understand why you need to be saved or what you need to be saved from, then a message of salvation is going to be somewhat meaningless to you. So that's what we're looking at here in the beginning of of Romans. Paul is writing to this church. It's people he's never met before. He's never been to this church, but he's writing them to give them good doctrine, to explain to them, here's what the gospel is, and here's how it works, and here's what it means for your life. And he begins by saying, well, if we're going to talk about good news, then I need to tell you why it's good news. I need to tell you why you need it. And so that's what we're talking about now. We need to understand this. Why is it important that Jesus came? Why is this something that is desperately important for us. Why is it important that Jesus lived a perfect life? Why does that matter? Why why is it important that Jesus died on a cross as a substitute for us? Well, the reason those things are important, the reason the gospel matters, 
Paul told us last week in chapter 1, is because God's judgment is coming. The judgment of God is coming against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness which is committed by people who suppress the knowledge of God and refuse to honor God and instead we honor other things. We worship material things and we live lives of rebellion against God. And Paul explained to us that the judgment of God is coming against these people. Against these people because they have broken God's commandments. They've thumbed their noses at God. As a result, they stand to be judged. And Paul described these people there in chapter 1. He he gave us a very graphic description. He said these are people who live immoral lives. People who are full of envy and malice, murder and strife, slander and deceit. They're haters of God and insolent, haughty, boastful, faithless, ruthless. They take pride in doing things which they should be ashamed of. And God's judgment is coming. And that's why these people need the gospel. That, that's why they need a savior. That They need to repent and receive God's mercy and grace which is offered to them in Jesus Christ. Now let me stop there. At this point, you can imagine not a lot of people would argue with this. Murderers need to repent and be saved. Well, of course they do. Everybody agrees on that. People who hate God need to repent because, hey, look, everybody would agree with this. No one would object to this because most people, even secular people, like non-religious people, most people would agree that these things are wrong. And most people would look at this and say, look, even if I don't believe in God, if I did believe in God, let's just say hypothetically there is a God. It would make sense that God would take offense at these things and that he would judge these things. It only seems right and fair and normal. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. I don't disagree. These people need to repent. But now, starting in chapter 2, Paul flips it around. He flips it around on us. And now he begins speaking to the moral person. So in chapter 1, he addresses the immoral person. Now in chapter 2, he addresses the moral person, the person who is reading this list of how those other people are like and kind of patting themselves on the back and congratulating themselves that they're not like the chapter 1s. They're not like the people that described in chapter 1. Those people. Everybody's got those people. You've probably got those people who you talk about. They're the people. They're the problem with the world. Those people. I don't know who those people are for you. Maybe it's people who do a certain thing or people on the other end of the political spectrum but we all believe that yeah those people are the problem and I'm sure glad I'm not one of those people and I'm sure glad to hear that God's going to do something about those people because they're a problem but to the moral person who would congratulate themselves that they're not one of those people mentioned in chapter one God's judgment is coming against the immoral and the unrighteous and they would say yeah right on let them have it Paul you tell them they need to turn or they're going to burn all those immoral people all those people they need to do it You tell him, Paul, let him have it. But now, Paul, essentially, it's as if he takes us by the shoulders and he says, I'm talking to you. I'm not just talking to those people, whoever they are. I'm talking to you. You who are a moral person. You who maybe feel a sense of of moral superiority to other people because you live a pretty good life. You pay your bills and you give to charity. You tip well. Like you're a good tipper and you're proud of that. And you don't yell at your family. I mean, at least not in public. You shut the windows first. And and Paul says, hey, you. And you're like, what? You're looking over your shoulder like, who's he talking to? And he's like, no, no, you, I'm talking to you. You're like, who, me? He's like, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. You who judge others and consider yourself morally superior to those people described in chapter one. I'm talking to you. And here's what he says, verse one. You are without excuse. You are without excuse. In other words, I'm not just talking to those people, whoever you imagine them to be. I'm talking to you. And he says in verse three here, he says this. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, think again. 
Suppose again, because you won't. You stand to be judged by God too. It's an equal opportunity situation. Everybody. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Here in this section, Paul is going to show us why it is that moral people need the gospel just as much as immoral people do. Moral people need the gospel just as desperately as immoral people do. And I think this is a really important point for us to see. Because here's the thing. Most of you, if you have ventured outside of your house at any point in the last several years, you've realized something. You've realized this, that there are a lot of people out there in the world who are not Christians, and yet they're really great people. They're really decent, honest, trustworthy, generous, kind people, and yet they don't go to church, and maybe they don't even believe in God, and, uh, and some people are surprised by that, right? Like, it doesn't fit in their paradigm, because their, their paradigm is this. The, the assumption is that people who are Christians are, are loving and awesome and kind and good, and people who are not Christians are kind of dangerous and foaming at the mouth, and they hate God, and they put puppies in a gunny sack and throw them in the river, and they just hate everything that's beautiful and good. And the fact is that if you venture outside of your house and you meet some people, you'll find quickly that that's not the case on either side all the time. And I'll tell you what, that was the same back when the Bible was written as well. In the first century Roman culture, there was a lot of immorality. There was a lot of debauchery. And that's, some of that's described in chapter 1. But here's the thing. Not, that wasn't all of Roman society. That was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. Just like not all of American society is Las Vegas and Hollywood, right? There's also a lot of other people who live in America who don't do those kind of things. The most famous Roman philosopher was a man named Seneca. And if you've ever heard of Seneca, you might know that Seneca was a teacher of morality. That was his big thing. It was all about how to be good, how to be moral, moral person. And then he also had other groups like the Stoics, who were also very popular. And the Stoics were all about being dutiful and good. They were, they were the straight edgers of the day, right? They didn't party and they didn't drink. So the average Greek or Roman person at this time was a lot like the average American today, right? They had a job. Maybe they had a family and a couple kids. They would come home in the evening and have dinner with their family. On the weekends, they'd go and do something fun as a family, or they would attend a children's birthday party. In other words, the average person was, was a decent person, moral person. And, and those people, whether they were religious Jews or whether they were just moral Greek people they, or Roman people, they would be in complete agreement with what Paul said in chapter 1, that immorality is wrong, and if there is a God, he's obviously going to judge it, and he should judge it. And again, the average religious Jewish person would also have been in complete agreement with everything Paul said in chapter 1. Immorality is wrong, and God's judgment is obviously coming against the ungodly and the unrighteous. But now, Paul, again, he turns it around, and now he addresses the moral person, both the religious moral person and the secular moral person. And here's what he says. He says, hey, don't think that I'm talking to somebody else. I am talking to you. In fact, right now, I'm going to talk directly to you, the moral person. And I want you to know this. God's judgment is coming on you, too. Just because you're moral does not mean that you get a free pass. It doesn't mean that God's judgment isn't also coming on you. So that's what we're going to be talking about today here in chapter 2. Why do moral people need the gospel? We're going to give you three reasons. Reason number one, moral people need the gospel because God's judgment is inescapable. That's the first four verses. God's judgment is inescapable. In the gospel of Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. We read a parable that Jesus told, and here's how it began. It says, Jesus told this parable to who? To people, some people, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. They looked down on other people. 
And here's what Jesus said. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, if for any of you, if you've been in church for any amount of time or read the Bible, you, you kind of get this thing where whenever you hear the word Pharisee, it's like one of those melodrama movies, right, where the bad guy comes in with the bad hat and he's like, you know, sneaking on the screen and you're like, boo, Pharisee. But that's not how people at this time would have thought at all. The Pharisees were considered the true Jews, the best of the best. Their goal was perfection in every area of their lives. They were an elite group of people who dedicated their lives to living every single moment of every single day according to the Bible. In the mind of the Jewish people, the Pharisees were the good guys. A tax collector, on the other hand, was considered a sellout, considered a traitor. They would make their money through what was basically extortion, and they were considered the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, immoral, unethical, vile people. And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's setting a scene. Two people go up to the temple to pray. One's a good guy, the other's a bad guy. One's a moral person, the other's an immoral person. And the people listening are like, oh man, I think I see where this is going. I think I see where this is going. This is going to be good. I, mean, I bet God's going to just strike that, that tax collector down like right on the spot. He's not even going to make it into the temple court. Who does this guy think he is? A terrible person like this coming into a holy place like this. Oh man, sparks are going to fly. I bet God God's just going to judge that guy right there on the spot and he's going to drop dead right where he's standing. So everyone's waiting. They, they think they know where the story's going. So what's going to happen? Jesus continues, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. This guy, I don't know if you ever had this happen to you where you're like, you're like someone says something about you and you're like, bro, I'm right here. Like I can hear you. I'm right here. I think that's what it was like. This tax collector's like, dude, I'm right here. Like, you're talking about me, and I can hear you. He's like, you know, this guy right here. And he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. Now, none of us pray like this. None of us pray like this. Like, I just imagine what it would be like if this next week you go to your community group, and during prayer time you prayed like this. Like, what would that be like? You'd be like, God, I thank you for tonight. Thank you for bringing us all here. Thank you, God, for the relationship I have with my wife. Thank you that I'm such a good husband. Not like, uh, not like John over here. Yeah, that's a mess over there, right? Or like Dan sitting across the way there. Man, I thank you, God, for the way that I love you. I thank you that I give. I give more than most people, especially like, I mean, I'm not stingy like Bob and Karen over here. Like those guys? No. So we don't pray like that. We just think like that. We don't pray like that. We just think like that. We don't say it out loud. But we have this tendency, of course, to think like that. We say, man, look how much better I'm doing than some other people out there. I mean, I'm at church. Gosh, what are other people doing? They're not in church. I must, God must be pretty impressed with me. Like, I could, it's sunny out. I could be doing anything right now. But I'm in church. I'm scoring some points, right? So we love to compare ourselves to people who have failed in areas where we think that we have succeeded. Right? And there's something sick about us where when someone else falls, we take this kind of sick pleasure in it because when they've fallen on the ground, that gives us the opportunity to stand on top of them and it makes us look all that much taller. And so then there's this tax collector. And how does he pray? Well, the tax collector says he was standing afar off. He wouldn't even get close to the temple, but he stood afar off and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast. He just pounded himself on the chest and he said, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Right, here's this tax collector. He knows he's a sinner. No one has to tell him that. He knows that he has nothing to stand on. He has nothing to offer God. He has nothing. 
And he just keeps pounding himself on the chest. He's like, God, I don't even know how to pray. I just know that I've messed up. God, I just know that all I can ask for is grace and mercy. Please don't kill me. Like, that's his actual prayers. God, just please don't kill me. And then the twist comes. Like in so many of Jesus' stories, this big twist comes at the end. And Jesus tells the crowd, verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man... And not the other went to his house justified. This man went to his house justified. Now, the silence in the crowd as they're listening to this story would have been broken by gasps as Jesus said this. Because the people would have said, what? Wait a second. That's not how this is supposed to end. The word justified is a legal term. It means to be made right with God. And the people would have been shocked to hear this. right? Jesus is saying that this immoral person was made right with God, but the moral guy was not right with God and that's not how how can that be and Jesus clarifies and he says this for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted see the reason the tax collector went home justified before God is because the tax collector understood that he had fallen short and that he needed God to save him that that was his only hope whereas the Pharisee was so confident in his own goodness. He, he failed to realize the fact that he too had fallen short and he also needed God to save him. See, here's the point of this story, that no matter who you are, no, whether you're the most moral person in the world or whether you're the most immoral person in the world, or whether you're somewhere in between, which is probably most of us, everybody has fallen short of God's standard. And the only way, the only hope that any of us have to escape God's coming judgment is for us to humble ourselves before God and to ask him to save us. Because nobody has lived up to God's standards. All of us have sinned and fallen short. And because of that, all of us deserve God's judgment, even the very best people who have ever lived. And that's why Paul begins here in chapter 2 by saying this, you have no excuse, you who judge other people. Because as you pass judgment on other people, you're condemning yourself because you, the judge, you do those same things yourself. Now, he says, we know the judgment of God rightly comes upon those who practice such things. So do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Think again, basically, is what he says. Now, that's interesting, right? Three times there, in those three verses, he says that the moral person is guilty of the exact same thing as the immoral person. Now, that's, that would be a little bit confusing, right? Like, can you imagine a moral person, maybe you or me, we, we might respond to that and say, Hey, no, no, no. It's not that way. Like, I've never committed those sins that that guy's committed. I've never done those things. But here's the thing. Maybe you've never murdered anybody. Maybe you've never, you know, done extortion. But you've still committed sins. Right? Like, you may not fall short in the same way that somebody else falls short. But you still fall short. And that's the point. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. The same thing that you are judging others for. You're guilty of the exact same thing. Now, you might say, hey, I've never murdered anybody. I've never embezzled money from my company. I've never cheated on my spouse. So don't put me in the same category as these other people who do these things. And, and the person, Paul here, he would respond in this way. He would say, well, tell me this. Why do you think those things are wrong? Why is it wrong to murder and embezzle and and have an adulterous affair? And you might say, well, those things are wrong because they hurt other people. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever hurt another person in the way that you talked, in the way that you acted? Of course you have. We all have. In other words, you're guilty too. Or you might say, hey, well, the reason those things are wrong is because the Bible says they're wrong. Well, okay, have you ever done anything that the Bible says is wrong? All of us have. 
So if what they did was a sin and, and you've done things that are sins, well then what does that all make us all of us, right? It makes all of us sinners. So we're all in the same boat. Even if you didn't do the exact same thing they did, you're in the same boat with them. And here's the thing about human nature. We all have this tendency to be very critical of other people except for ourselves. We're very critical of everybody except for ourselves. We're very gracious towards ourselves. Like when other people do things, we get this sense of righteous indignation. Like, how could they? I can't believe that they did that. But when it comes to ourselves, we're very understanding, right? We're very gracious. We, we take into consideration all the nuances of the situation, don't we? And if you compare yourselves to others, you will always think you're doing fine. Because you can always find somebody who's doing worse than you, right? Even the biggest knucklehead in the world, right? The biggest uh, guy who's doing the craziest stuff can always find one other guy who's doing worse than him. And it'll be like, well, you know, I could be worse. I could be that guy. And you always say, well, I may have problems, but at least I'm doing better than her. Here's the problem, though. God's standard is not how bad are other people doing and you should do a little bit better. God's standard is holiness and perfection. You know, I've heard people say this before. They'll say, well, you know, Jesus never said we have to be perfect. Well, actually, he did. I, I have the verse for you right here. He said, therefore, you must be perfect. I mean, like your Heavenly Father is perfect. So did Jesus say that we have to be perfect? Yeah, he actually said exactly that. Like that's his exact words. But here's the thing. The word perfect in Greek, you know what it means? It means perfect. It means the exact same thing as it says. People are like, well, what does that mean in Greek? Well, guess what it means in Greek? It means perfect. It means the same thing. So you might say, well, hey, but nobody's perfect. Well, that's the exact point that we're trying to make. That's the exact point that the Bible's trying to make, right? Everybody has fallen short. Some people have fallen short a little bit, and some people have fallen short a lot, but everybody has fallen short. Another thing I hear people say, well, listen, God doesn't, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He just expects us to do our best. Again, not true. Here's what the Bible says in Leviticus, and it's quoted in 1 Peter. He says, be holy as I am holy. And if you're ever not holy, that's called unholiness or unrighteousness. And God's judgment is coming against what? All the unrighteousness. In other words, my best isn't good enough. My best is not good enough. And maybe you say, Nick, you're bumming me out, man. What the heck? This is Sunday morning. I'm trying to have a good day. And you're just ruining it. Well, no, I'm not. And I'll tell you why. This is not the worst message that you've ever heard, this is the best message you've ever heard. And you're like, are you trying to pull some kind of mind trick on me? No, I'm not. This is the most hopeful, most joyful message in the world. And you know why? Because here's what it means. It means that no matter who you are, you can be saved. It means that whether you're like this tax collector, you are not beyond redemption. Anybody can be saved, no matter what you've done or where you've been. If you've messed up a little or if you've messed up a lot, we're all in need of the same salvation. And the good news is that salvation has been provided. But what you cannot do is think that you don't need that salvation. That's the worst thing, the most dangerous thing you can do. See, that's the thing. The worst thing you can do, the most dangerous thing you can do is to assume that just because you're not as bad as some other people out there, that therefore you don't need to be saved in order to be made right with God. That you must be right with God already because you're better than, than somebody else that you can find. One of Jesus' most famous parables is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'm not going to go into it in detail. I just want to give you the big picture. It's found in Luke chapter 15. You can read it in your community groups. You're going to be reading that this week and going into more detail. But for today, I just want to look at the big picture of the, the parable. Here's what it's about. It's the story of a father who had two sons. The younger son goes out and he lives a very immoral life. Uh, sin and debauchery and just all kinds of crazy, ungodly stuff. 
But the older son never did anything like that. The older son was very dutiful. He worked in the father's business. He lived a good, moral life, and he worked for his father in the family business for years. And he was always there and always did what was expected of him. But at the end of the story, again, there's a twist ending, a surprising ending. And here's what happens. The younger son repents of his sins, and the father forgives him and receives him back. And the story ends with this very vivid picture. Look at it. The younger son is inside the house. There's a feast going on. So the younger son is feasting inside the house with the father, and the older son is outside the house, not feasting, all alone, cut off from the father. He's at enmity with the father. And the, the very thing which keeps the older brother from coming in and, and being with the father and enjoying this feast is what? The thing that keeps him on the outside is his own self-righteousness. That he feels upset because he's so self-righteous. And the point of this parable is this. Do not assume that just because you aren't as bad as other people that you're okay. Don't assume that just because you're not as bad as other people, that that means you're right with God. See, there are a lot of people in this world who are like the older brother in that story. In fact, I'd say there are probably more people in this world like the older brother than like the younger brother. There are more people in the world like the older brother. In other words, they live moral lives, and yet they are far from God. They live moral lives, and yet they're estranged from God. And here's the crazy part. The biggest barrier between them and God is their own self-righteousness. Maybe there are some of you today, and that is exactly what's happening in your life. And maybe this is just something you need to think about today. You need to confront yourself with this. That's exactly what's happening in your life. You are self-righteous. It's insidious. It creeps in, I'll tell you. But you have become self-righteous, and it is creating a barrier between you and God. Notice what it says in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Let me put it for you this way. Don't confuse God's kindness with God's approval. Don't confuse God's kindness with God's approval. In other words, some people think that if things are going well in their life, then that must be the sign that God is pleased with them and he's approving of the way that they're living or the way that they're doing things. And Paul's saying, no, 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 don't, don't think that at all. Or they think that, hey, because God isn't punishing me or judging me and, and bad things aren't happening to me, then that must be a sign that God's perfectly okay with the way that I'm living and the way that I'm going. But Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not how it works, guys. God's kindness towards you, his patience, his blessings, they're not meant to lull you into a false sense of security. God's kindness in your life is meant to drive you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to repentance, to that place where you say, wow, God, this is incredible. You are so good to me, and I don't deserve it. You've given me so much. You've given me good health, a good job, a roof over my head. You've given me everything I need. How could I not praise you? How could I not give my life to you? And God, I'm sorry for the times when I haven't honored you because you deserve it. Look how good you are. But instead, what a lot of people in our society particularly do, we live in an abundant, wealthy society. You don't have to teach this to people who live in, in poor developing countries as much as you do as people who live in wealthy countries like our own. See, what people in our society do, because we have abundance, is what we say. We say, dang, God is blessing me. Right? Like, I don't have any crises in my life. Everything's going smoothly. Everything's working out just like I planned it would. And then we assume that that means that God must be approving of us. That must be God's favor in our lives, that he's happy with how we're living and what we're doing. Now think about that logic and think about how, how crazy it is. What about the person who has a bigger house than you do? 
Does God love them more? Well, what about the person who has a nicer car than you do, a bigger flat screen, and yet they live a life that mocks God? Does that mean that God is approving of them? Of course not. This is silly logic. And then flip that around. And that's when it gets really crazy. What about the person living in the third world country? What about the person in Haiti who is devoutly following Jesus faithfully every day and yet they're living off of a dollar a day? They're struggling to feed their family. Does that mean that God is not blessing them? That God's not in favor of the way that they are following him? See, here's the thing. We should be thankful for God's blessings, but we shouldn't confuse them with God's favor or God's approval. See, obviously it would be foolish to think that just because you have a good quality of life, that that automatically means that you have a good quality relationship with God. So in other words, don't confuse God's kindness with God's approval or God's favor. Just because you're not experiencing God's judgment upon your sins right now, that doesn't mean it's not coming. See, don't take God's patience and God's forbearance to mean that God is just fine and you don't need, that you're just fine and you don't need to be saved. Instead, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, not into a false sense of security. And that brings us to our next point, and that's this. Moral people need the gospel because God's judgment is righteous. This is verses 5 through 11. God's judgment is righteous. Verse 5 says this. Because of your hard and impertinent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Have you ever stood at the bottom of a very big dam? Like uh, I was up in Netherlands recently, this big dam that holds back all this water. It's crazy. You know, look at that dam and it's not very thick really, relatively, to how much water it holds back. Or I went to the Hoover Dam last year and it's just incredible that there's this wall, this concrete wall, that's just holding back this entire bunch of water. And if that dam were to ever give, I mean it would be disastrous. It'd be catastrophic. And that's the picture I want you to see that's being painted here. He says, with every sin you commit, every commandment you break, you are storing up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more of God's wrath and God's judgment towards you. It's as if God is standing there and he's holding back this, like a giant dam, holding back this wall of judgment and wrath. And everything we do is just adding to it and adding to it, storing up more and more wrath. And one day, He's going to stop holding it back. And that torrent of judgment and wrath is going to come and it's going to absolutely wipe us out. Look what it says in verse 6. He will render each according to his works to those who, work, uh, who, who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What, what's he saying here? Is he saying that you can actually get to heaven by being a good enough person? Well, you need to understand, it's just kind of like a highbrow humor that's not really funny, that kind of thing, like uh, when people from Harvard tell jokes. He, what he's saying here is, it's like, it's tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of a joke. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, just imagine for a second that you could save yourself by being a good enough person. How many people would be saved in that case? And the answer is zero. There would be zero. Like, even if it were possible for you to save yourself from God's judgment by being good enough, then literally still nobody would be saved because every single one of us, even the very best of us, have sinned. We've all had our moments when we were self-seeking or did something we shouldn't have. And so we can put it this way. God's judgment is coming against sinners. And that means me. It means you. It means everybody. How many sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? One, right? Like, so whether you've sinned a little or you've sinned a lot, 
That puts us all in the same category before God. It's kind of like this. If you tried to swim, if we all had a competition, all of us, we have to swim to Hawaii from California. Right now, some of you are probably better swimmers than others. And some of you, you wouldn't make it very far. Like you would just die in the breakers, like right there on the beach, you know, and you'd just be done. A few of you would make it a couple, maybe you make it a couple hundred feet or a couple hundred yards. Or, or maybe you'd even make it a couple miles. And a rare few of you might get even further than that. People swim the English Channel. The English Channel is about 30 miles. And people swim across it. And so maybe some of you would swim 30, 40, maybe even 50 miles. Let's just say you were able to swim a hundred miles. Eventually, all of us would die before we made it to Hawaii. And that's the point. What, the, what it's simply telling us is this. Do not believe the lie that good people go to heaven. Do not believe the lie that good people go to heaven because the truth is no one is good enough to make it on their own. I'm going to end on a high note, just so you know. Okay? All right. Finally, moral people need the gospel because God's judgment is impartial. Moral people need the gospel because God's judgment is impartial. Verse 12, for all have sinned without the law, they will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now somebody might say, well, what about all these people out there who haven't ever read the Bible? How can God hold them accountable for something which they've never read, which they don't even maybe even know exists? How is that fair? And here's what Paul says, everybody in the world has a sense of right and wrong. Everybody's got a conscience, and it's built into us. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. In other words, just because you own a Bible, just because you even know what's in the Bible, that doesn't make you right with God, right? Like if you know God's commandments, then that just means that you're accountable to those commandments. That's all it means. And if you've known them and broken them, well then guess what that makes you? A sinner. Well, what about people who don't know God's commandments? Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what is in the law. They are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. Here's what he's saying. Even if you've never read the Bible in your life, everybody has a conscience and every single person has done things that have gone against their conscience. Our conscience, Paul says, that is God's law written on our hearts of every human being and yet all of us at one time or another we have acted against our consciences. All of us have had moments where our conscience told us don't do that and then we said nah, I'm going to do it anyway and we did. And what Paul is saying is for those of us who know God's law, God will judge us according to his law. But for those of us who don't know God's law, then God will judge you according to your conscience. How you did things in spite of the fact that you yourself knew that those things were wrong. The author Francis Schaeffer used this example. He says, just imagine if every one of us were wearing a recording device around our necks. And it would always just turn on as soon as we said the word ought to or should. Right? In other words, when we say that this is how people should act or this is how people ought to act or that's not the right thing, that you shouldn't do that or you should do this. In other words, that's our standard, what we think about how people should act. Not God's standards, not the Ten Commandments, not any religion standards. Your standards, if it was recorded. And then on the day of judgment, you stand before God and God says, okay, hand me, hand me the recorder. I'm going to be super generous with you. I'm not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to judge you by any religion and what any religion says. I'm just going to judge you by what you yourself said is the standard of right and wrong. And he says, no one would pass that test. Because that's the thing. We don't even live up to our own standards. The point of all of this is to show this. Everybody's in the same boat. Moral people, immoral people, religious people, non-religious people, we're all in the same boat. All of us. None of us are exempt. And what that means is that none of us has any right to look down on anyone else. 
I hope that's the first point I want to make. None of us has any right to look down on anybody else because we're all in the same boat. All of us have fallen short. None of us are what we should be. None of us can save ourselves. And how ridiculous would it be for us to look down our noses at someone else just because they're a little bit less of a sinner than we are? We're all in the same boat. It's the great equalizer. And this would all be very somber and disheartening were it not for four little words in the last verse of this section. Verse 16, check it out. On that day... When according to my gospel, those are the words, four words. According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. By who? By Christ Jesus. See, he's been talking about God's judgment. And why does he say that God will judge according to my gospel? Remember, what does the gospel mean? It means good news. How, how is it good news that God is going to judge according to the good news? God is going to judge according to the good news. Well, what is the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came and, and he lived the perfect life that none of us could live. In verse 10, it says this, if someone could live a good life, then that, the reward of the good life would be glory and honor and peace. Jesus did live that life. He lived a perfect life. He lived a holy life. He lived up to God's standards. He was holy. He was perfect. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. But not only did Jesus live the life that we should have lived, he also died the death that we should have died. And so what we read is that as we've been storing up wrath, more and more and more wrath, and, and there's like a dam holding back this flood, this torrent with every sin, every time we go against our conscience. And, and we talked about how God's holding back this, this increasing wall of judgment and wrath like a dam, but one day he's going to let it go. Here's the message of the gospel, that Jesus on the cross, he took your place. And like, and that bursting dam, that torrent of God's wrath and God's judgment, it hit him instead of you. It hit him instead of you. He took your place and it hit him with full force. And that is the great exchange, that he trades places with you. And the glory and honor and peace that he deserves because of the life that he lived, he gives it to you. And he takes your place under the dam of God's judgment and it is released on him. See, this is why moral people need the gospel. This is why all people need the gospel because the gospel is our only hope. It is our amazing, wonderful, glorious hope. It is truly good news. And unless you understand how desperate and serious the situation is, you will never appreciate how good and how glorious what God did for you in Christ Jesus really is. That is what this section is about. But here's the last thing. This gospel, this good news, it's not gonna do anything for you unless you make it your own. Look at what he says there in verse 16. Paul says, according to my gospel, my gospel. It wasn't Paul's gospel because he made it up. It was Paul's gospel because he treasured it, because he loved it, because he embraced it, because he owned it for himself. In the same way that a soldier looks at a flag and says, that's my flag. In the same way that a soldier looks at their country and says, that's my country. Paul says, he looks at the gospel and he says, that's not just the gospel in general. That is my gospel. I believe it. I've made it my own. And here's the thing for you today. Unless you make the gospel your own your gospel it won't do anything for you unless you personally trust in it unless you personally trust in what Jesus did for you as your substitute unless you embrace it unless you take hold of it by faith only then will it have its effect in your life only then will it save you only then will it transform you so let me ask you today have you ever made the gospel your own have you taken that step to make it your own not your parents gospel for those of you who are younger not not your spouse's gospel 
that they believe. Not the preacher's gospel that he talks about all the time. Have you made it your own? Is it yours? Is it your gospel? Have you embraced it for yourself? I want to encourage you, do that today. Maybe you said, well, I've done that lots of times. Well, you need to do it again today. As we look on the direness of our human condition, as it relates to, to God and his holiness, may we see more and more clearly, more than ever before, the goodness and the beauty and the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that it is our only hope and it is truly good news. And may we go from this place today with thankful hearts, full of confidence, knowing that we are loved by God, and may we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, as we consider the seriousness of the human condition, of our condition, Lord, all the more we see how good and glorious and true you are, what you've done for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. And today, we want to make this our own. We want to not just talk about it, not just have it be a hypothetical thing that we think about. We want it to be real and personal in our lives. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who says, yeah, that's exactly right. I need to embrace it today. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would embrace the gospel, that it's not just true in general, but it's true for each and every one of us. Lord, thank you for what you did for us. We see your love in how you laid down your life for us. So Lord, this morning, may we go full of confidence in your love for us and truly embracing the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.